On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? Eric, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. I got back from my 10-year anniversary trip last week, and oh. I was in uh, Northern California. It was, it was great. But Congratulations. Great to be back here in Phoenix. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I'm so glad that you had a chance to get away, and I'm glad you're back safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We are uh, all moved. We sold a house and moved into another house, and boy, I am old, and I got too much <laughs> stuff. So those two things are on my list. I got to figure out how to fix one of them at least. Uh, all right. So. All right. I know you got a guest today in studio. Who'd you bring in? I do. I'm really, really excited about this one. I've actually, for, for clients that are listening in, when I talked to you about the steel guy, when I've shared some of his comments to me, this is who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jeremy Flack. Steel he's guy. the founder and uh, CEO of Flack Global Metals, and he's been in this business since the 1990s. And it's just such, whenever I have conversations with Jeremy, it's such an optimistic conversation about what's happening in the world economy. It's really easy to turn on the news and you see Russia, Ukraine, you see inflation, you see supply chain and all these issues. And one of the things, particularly around the economy, that is really, really fundamental, it's steel. I mean, steel is, is, is absolutely the base of almost every country's economic might. And Jeremy's in it. You know, he's, with, he's in there with all, the, with all the suppliers and all the players in that space. And he's got a lot of great insight to what's happening uh, in the economy for sure. So I'm thrilled to have him here. Jeremy, thank you for coming in. Well, Brent, thank you for having me. It's uh... It's an honor in a way for somebody to even care about the steel industry. You know, we've been uh, bumping along in this country for a couple hundred years in the steel business. And every now and then we pop up and we become interesting. So uh, it's nice to see uh, you realize what an integral part of things that we are. I've got a little bit of a background in it because my, my grandfather on my mother's side was in the steel business. He was, um, he was president of a company called Maganese Steel out of Philadelphia. And then was president of a company called Taylor Wharton. Uh, which I think I believe now is part of Harsco, uh, before before he ultimately retired, I think in 1981 or 1982, and he went to Lehigh University. So when I was a kid out in that part of Pennsylvania, you know, obviously Bethlehem Steel was come on, that was that was America at one point between this, the Bethlehem Works, and then you had Sparrow Point in Maryland and everywhere else. And uh, steel business fell in some hard times, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, and it really seems like it's reinvented itself in a lot of ways. And I think that if the direction and you're, you're going to shed a lot more light on this for certainly than I can. But if the direction the steel industry is taking is any way representative of what's happening in our economy, I think the U.S. is in a really great place right now. So what, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you're, you're gaslighting me with this idea, but um, you know, Brent, if you look at, I like to talk about LaGuardia Airport. Yeah. Okay. I know you spent a lot of time living in New York City. Yes. And LaGuardia is. So up until, <laughs> up until recently, right? You, you pull in the LaGuardia and think, I'm in a third world country. Yes. What is happening to me? Yeah. And I'm in Haiti. I'm not in New York. And you know, why was LaGuardia the stage it was before they started to, to revamp it the last few years, right? It was the first airport, right? Exactly. I mean, it was the first substantial metropolitan, you know, urban airport that was relevant probably in the world. Yeah. 
you know, you look at Dubai, they got brand new airports, right? They're building another brand new airport because 30 years ago in Dubai, it was a fishing village. Yep. Okay. So look at the steel industry in the United States. We've just finished a 44 year restructuring. That's what's happened. And we're, it's over now. So you go back to pre-World War II, uh, World War II, we come out of World War II and the United States economy was 50% of a global economy. And our steel companies were the strongest steel companies in the world. Germany, obviously Europe destroyed, Japan's destroyed. So we export our technology to those countries. They rebuild their steel industry and we live off the fat of the land. And in the fifties, there was a massive strike in the United States and steel business. It's the first time that imported steel had come into this country since the latter part of the 19th century, you know, 1800s, yeah, 19th century. So we let the foreign steel in, in the fifties and starts to germinate here. And then we stopped really inventing new technologies for steelmaking in the United States. We lived off what we had. We incrementally improved, but we really didn't move along with the rest of the world. But we were so rich for so long in the steel industry, right? That it took a while to erode that base from underneath. And you get to the late 1970s and you hit the first round of major restructuring in the United States steel industry, which happened in the early 80s and the mills were closed in Pittsburgh keep moving through the 80s and new technologies are invented by companies in the United States, namely Nucor Steel. So Nucor Steel invents, the, or doesn't invent, but put, deploys the first thin slab caster to make flat roll steel in the world. This is electric arc furnace manufacturing or recycling scrap to make steel, to make it into, into sheet steel, which is the primary product used in developed economies. And Nucor sets about this massive technological change that happens in the 90s in the US steel industry. So first you had antiquated old integrated steel mills. Then you had the advent of something called electric arc furnace or mini mill manufacturing, which was brand new technology in the United States. And that then takes another big swipe at the industry. And then it goes through consolidations and more restructurings in the 2010s, uh, two, excuse me, 2000s and 2010s. And then suddenly right around where COVID's hitting, US steel, buys an electric arc furnace manufacturer called Big River Steel, which was a startup in 2016, totally changes their business model. Cleveland, U.S. Steel we're talking about, like US kind of the steel. old dinosaur of the business. The old dinosaur bought the brand new upstart uh, renegade steel uh, maker. And then uh, Cleveland Cliffs, which is an old miner, which mines iron ore, they bought a massive steel company, which was a conglomerate, you know, kind of a, a, a agglomeration of old integrated steel making assets in the United States. They put together something called ArcelorMittal and, and AK Steel. Mm -hmm. And now you went from an industry when I started in it in the late 90s that had 25 flat roll steel manufacturers. Now you have six, four of which dominate the market. Mm -hmm. So you have new technology now in the United States, some of the best steel making in the world. We are as efficient or more efficient than anyone in the world to make steel in this country. We make the greenest, most carbon friendly, if you will, steel. Most of our steel is recycled. It's not virgin uh, product. It's like 70%. It's 70% headed to over 80% in the next couple of years. Okay. And you know we have a very sustainable business model for steel now in the United States. So we just went through this massive restructuring and there a lot of you know, negative connotations about the steel business. In fact, I live out here with you in Arizona and there's not a lot of steel, you know, business out here. And when I meet friends and parents at school and things, they, they ask me what I do. I say, I'm in the steel industry. They say, well, do we still make steel in this country? I'm like, yeah, you know, we, we have the most efficient, you know, world-class steel business. You know, it's here, it's here in the United States. And, and what's 
incredible about what's happening is the reinvestment that's going on in infrastructure for steelmaking in the United States. So you have a tremendous amount. Of, I can't add up the billions of dollars that are being invested by companies like Newcore Steel and Steel Dynamics, Cleveland Cliffs, and U.S. Steel in their businesses to develop new facilities, but it's many, 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 many billions of dollars. These are very healthy companies now, and we still have that stigma. And certainly when we're recruiting in our industry, or when we think about our industry, it's in this constant state of decline men- mentally, but it's really not. It's really super healthy and it's in a growth mode. You know, when you talk about production, uh, real quick question for you, the dominant player in the world is China. It's like 50% of global steel, it something is. like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I looked, I was looking at that and kind of prepping for today, I was looking at where the US stood in terms of global production through the last several decades. And there was a time in the 1980s where the Soviet Union made way more steel than we did. And of course, you know, when the, when the wall fell, it fell off a cliff and, and, and I guess not much left of that. But is the stuff that China is making from a quality standpoint, are they, are they, are they just churning out kind of the cheapest stuff or are they making good stuff or is there a quality difference between their steel and our steel? They make some of the best steel in the world. Okay. The, the, the Chinese, you know, a ton of steel is not a ton of steel. And I, we're going to, I don't want to get into too much detail. We don't have that kind of time and I don't want to be granular, but when you look at a, an economy that's developing, the preponderance of steel that they produce in those countries are for heavy construction products, road building, building dams, you know, these kinds of heavy infrastructure. As an economy begins to mature, that um, the demand for that as a percentage of all the steel that a, an economy needs goes down, and what goes up are white goods type uh, of steel. So these are flat roll steels called sheet steel. And you know, the economic value of a, a refined sheet steel product versus the economic value of a rebar that goes into the road are two totally different things. Yeah. So when you look to the United States and very mature, and you look to Europe, you know, very mature um, economies, most of the consumption are the more exotic flat roll steels. Certainly China can make everything we make in the United States and more. Um, but if you look at their entire steel industry, Right, it's still oriented toward building out basic infrastructure as a percentage of its total. Now, I don't know the exact percentages off the top of my head, but they can make anything and everything. Uh, they're very good at making steel, and they have some of the most competent manufacturers in the world. All right, so there's no, there's not a really a quality difference, uh, but they have a they have a difference on the input side, which is that they use a lot of low grade iron ore and what's called center feed and lower grade iron products that they have to burn a tremendous amount of carbon to produce virgin um, iron to put into manufacturing as opposed to the United States where you know 80%, 70 now going to 80% of our flat roll steel is made with recycled product. So, so they've got to go through a tremendous transition that we've already gone through here. Right. So we're decades ahead because they, they built the steel industry from not much 20 years ago. And we've been going through this constant evolution over, you know, the last 40 years. Got it. Now, obviously Russia, Ukraine, the war is on any, everyone's mind that's dealing with any kind of global commodities. You look at what's done to the grain markets, what's done to the, to the oil markets. What has the impact been in your world? For, well, for actually, first, I should probably do a little, a little backtrack here. Tell us exactly how you are in this business and, and what, and what uh, Flat Global Metals does. So, so the listeners can get an idea of, of, of the lens you're looking through. Right, so we have a unique company in the steel space in, in, in the United States. We are a, a hybrid. We are one-third domestic distributor, one-third international commodity or merchant trader, and one-third hedge fund. 
we, when we started the business in 2000, our angle, our you know, competitive advantage was wrapped with combining the old world steel business and distribution with um, new financial products that had been developed for steel on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So we're the first distributor, at least in the United States, to build the hedging of steel into the physical distribution of steel. And so that, that's been our space. It's been our niche. We've, we uh, built that niche. It didn't exist before us. And it's really new in the steel industry at large. I mean, you've got a couple hundred year old industry and the, the hedge for flat roll steel has only been liquid for about the last five years. So we were ahead of that discussion. But we're also now known as kind of the establishment for uh, risk management. And certainly that's something that is important to the financial market. Sure, absolutely. How companies manage risk. And that's where we're, you know, we're, we're at the front of that discussion. So manufacturing companies are coming to you and saying, we need this product, this product, this product. And you are essentially helping set that supply chain up for them and hedging off some of the risk and price fluctuations. That's correct. Okay. So, so you're in the middle of really of all this stuff. So give me an idea of what the disruptions to the supply, to your supply chain, or at least in steel have been as a result of what's, what's happening now in Russia and Ukraine? Well, the tale of Russia and Ukraine for, for the steel industry and for some of the other base metals is much different than for agriculture. So let's separate the two there. I think if you look at Ukraine uh, and Russia as a, from a food production standpoint, you have an entirely different discussion. And that disruption is far worse now that we kind of got a damage assessment from this war. Uh, to to the world than and in energy markets than than in the base metals market. So what's happening? Well, at least we don't have, I don't have direct confirmation of this, but our sense of what is happening is that Russia's steel is being sold around the world at massive discounts to the to the spot to the global export price, uh, and countries are buying it because they're in desperate financial need anyway. So why would they? If they can get a deal, they'll take a deal right. and they'll go around the sanctions. So what, what started to look like a shortage was developing in the inputs for making steel and some steel products uh, because of the war turned out to, there's now there's unintended consequences or tremendous amount of pressure when you certainly when you combine it with China being shut down. So that's another kind of quandary at the moment. You have this disruption in the Ukraine and you also have China with lockdowns. Right. And so the Chinese steel producers have been producing much less. In fact, their production is down 10% year over year. And 10% of China's steel production is some, you know, and they make over a billion tons a year. So if that were to continue, that that 10% reduction is the equivalent of the entire United States steel industry. So yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. So their inventories are piling up. In China, you have the Russians, I don't want to say dumping because it's kind of a broad term, but moving material around the sanctions around the world, still producing. They haven't stopped making the stuff. Uh, Russia hasn't been as impacted as we would like to believe that, that they have been by the sanctions, at least not in base metals. It doesn't look it's doesn't look like it either. Even in terms of you know financially, when the war started, the ruble collapsed. The ruble's trading right now back to where it was pretty much when the invasion. Well, began. they're they're selling oil for one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. Well, they're yeah. actually selling it at a discount, but at, that they're getting a lot of cover. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's unintended consequence. If you go back and look at the Trump tariffs in two thousand eighteen, which were the last time the steel business was popular to talk about, um, there were unintended consequences from those tariffs. The first thing that happened was there was a run on steel and pricing went up and, and then a bubble was created and the bubble popped. And on the other side of it was a year and a half of, de of declining prices. So we're, we're, we're starting to feel this vibe that there are unintended consequences from these sanctions and that Russia is working its way around it, which would, which would be to your point, 
you know, they're doing okay uh, in spite of it. And- yeah. I read a story recently that um, some mills in Italy, one was getting, uh, one was getting their base steel from a Ukrainian mill. And I guess then they, they did what they did or improved it from there. And they've been completely shut down since the war started. Mm-hmm. Another one was owned, uh, was, was basically, they know it's owned by a Russian oligarch mm-hmm. and the steel's coming from Russia and they're still running at full capacity because 51% ownership is, is in Italy. So they get around the, and, right. the, and the trucks that are bringing in, the trains that are bringing in are all technically not Russian. So it, I, it's just always fascinating to me that, you know, markets, markets always tend to find a way. You have a steel mill in the United States. It's owned by Russia and it's operating just fine. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there you know, for a minute there, it looked like it'd be a big problem, but it's been worked around and Ukraine is not a big steel producer. Yeah. So the Ukraine's steel business is not world. Um, it's not going to be a world influence there. I mean, the, the size of the whole Ukrainian economy is, you know, $130 billion. It's tiny. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, if, if, if the, if the market value of everything traded in Ukraine was an S and P 500 stock, it wouldn't be in the S and P 500. We're talking a maybe a mid cap stock, a single mid cap stock. Right. Um, okay. It's, so that's, so what do you think in terms of, you mentioned the lockdowns in China. So that sounds like it's probably having maybe a bigger impact than anything happened in Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, that's the story right now. Is is are the Chinese going to try to st- or be able to even stimulate their way out of the situation? I mean, they're they're in a corner, and I I don't you know you can read about all this outside of our opinion, but what we're seeing on the ground is a tremendous amount of pressure in Southeast Asia on steel prices, and then that's trickling, it's moving, you know, putting pressure in Europe. You know, as goes China's steel industry, goes the world steel industry. You made the point earlier that they're fifty percent of the you know world production for steel, so there's a domino effect. And United States is traditionally, we have been that since the beginning of my career, short steel in this country. Like we've made less than we've consumed. So we're a net importer of steel. And so we're, you know, the dominoes, when they start to, to you know, <laughs> fall, they end up, it ends up falling here in the United States. So if we have a high price here, then, you know, Asia is taking advantage of that. So our prices spiked with uh, Russia, Ukraine, there's like a short squeeze. Uh, and then, you know, product has been coming in at least marketed here and, um, is coming here, you know, kind of undercover of high prices in the United States and low prices in Asia. Got it. Got it. So basically from a supply chain standpoint, steel, there's plenty of steel, plenty of steel. There's plenty of steel. The, the, the COVID, um, supply chain shortage, at least when it comes to steel is over. Yeah. Uh, completely over. That's good to hear because I've actually I've spoken to some people in other businesses and they're saying that they're kind of telling me the same thing. You know, supply chain, obviously a huge topic of conversation right now. And they are seeing in their businesses that uh, although it may not be perfect, it's improving, it's getting better. Yeah. Lead times are fairly short for us. Um, you know, it feels like the normal, it's starting to feel like the normal steel business again um, to a great extent. Yeah. So that's, that's positive. And the positive, you know, we, I, I think, Looking at the companies throughout the supply chain in steel, they're very healthy businesses now. I mean, our customers have healthy businesses. The steel mills in this country are extremely healthy businesses, and good decisions are being made. Um, you know, fluctuations, short-term fluctuations in the price. I, I had a conversation with a Wall Street analyst this morning. We talked about this very thing, which was that you know, short, short. It used to be when you looked at the steel stocks or you looked at them from an equity stand, investment standpoint, the the price was the governing determinant of these stocks values. And I think we're seeing uh, 
more of a macro rotation in and out of these stocks. We're also seeing so that the street is starting to give them a little more value than just what they can convert steel for. And, and that's because of a lot of things. I think it's because they've made a lot of you know tremendous investment in their own businesses. They have more durable businesses. They have more durable earnings than they've had in the last several decades. There is some recognition, I think, that the industry has consolidated and has a little bit more pricing power. And there's also you know, a step change going on in economy in, excuse me, in commodities where commodities are going to be more expensive than they've ever been. And that's, we're not likely to head right back to where commodities were priced four or five years ago. And many of these companies, and you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation here in the 1990s, what was it? It was, it was legacy costs. It was huge debt burdens. It was trying to pump product out of these mills that were just not modern anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, through the consolidation that's occurred, I, I'm guessing, not not knowing the business that well, probably a lot of that stuff has been now washed out. So that they're working with a much cleaner slate than they have been in the past. Is yeah, that look, accurate? At, look at a company like U.S. Steel. I mean, I think they've paid off all their debt. Their debt was enormous. Years, that's, that, that, that is a debt-free company. Is, right I think now? their debt is gone or will be gone very shortly. Uh, Cleveland Cliffs, I think their debt is gone or will be gone very shortly. Uh, U.S. Steel is being valued something like two times. Two times earnings. Yeah. yeah. And and these are these companies they aren't the you, the discussion in our industry now is you know, the the, pre, the 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 premise for a lot of the analysts and their view on the steel industry in the United States with the fact that we're adding quite a bit of new capacity in our country is that that's going to crash the price it's going to crash the value of these companies are going to be too much capacity the, the the predicate there is that they will these companies today will act like the companies did in a during a 40 five-year restructuring. And my contention is they, they, they won't. They don't have to. They can close the mills. They can moderate production in slow times because they have the cash, they have the balance sheet to do it. Right. So you know, there will be an ebb and flow of foreign steel coming in and out of this country or coming into this country and then not coming into this country. There will be an ebb and flow in what we call apparent demand. So you have apparent demand, which is kind of the load on the mills and how companies like mine are feeling their backlogs growing and, or, or shrinking. And then you have real demand, which is how the economy bumps along you know, buying things. Mm -hmm. So right now, apparent demand in our industry is not very good. There's a hangover from COVID and really high prices and all these things is still being shaken out. But the real demand is very good. Our customers' uh, backlogs are very strong. And step one, you know, the, the Fed's going to raise, and now we have, and again, you guys have at Raymond James have a lot more firepower on the general economics discussion than, than we do. But First stop for the automotive manufacturers is catch up. Second stop is fill the lots back up. How many years is that going to take? You know, we look at these figures. You know, we 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 are making millions of cars less per year than we need to. The age of the automobile fleet is at twelve and a half years oldest it's ever been. Apparently, some of that has to do with the cars are better, but some of that has to do with you can't replace them. Yeah, and you create this chicken and the egg situation here in the United States with housing with auto with DIY and from the, from a steel consumption standpoint, because that's what I'm qualified to talk about. It's like, I don't want to say it's like this unlimited source of demand, but the demand is tremendous for steel in this country right now. And a hundred or 200 basis point move in the fed funds rate isn't, isn't going to wreck that because that demand will still be there. I mean, housing formation, household formation was slowed dramatically after the great recession. And we just kind of started climbing out of that in the late, you know, late teens. And then bang, we walk into COVID and, and for a year and a half, everybody took a pause. Yeah, And so 
added up, right? Now there's now we're short 10 million homes. I, you know, these figures, everybody's got a figure, but the figure's big. We're short cars, we're short homes, we're short, you know, we're we're rearranging the way distribution works in this country. This is not talked about a whole lot, but you look at a regional mall that's now empty because nobody goes to the mall. The mall comes to you. So what are they doing with the malls? Amazon buys the malls, they retrofit them in the warehouses. What's it take? Lots of steel, right? Mm-hmm. Last mile retail. So you're rebuilding the retail infrastructure in this country as tastes have changed. And also, you know, a lot of the millennials, you know, nobody, not enough talk, not nobody, not enough talk about the massive millennial generation. And they're old enough now to buy houses. I look at my millennials in our, in our company, they're making a lot of money. They're doing great. They want to buy a house. They're having kids. You know, yeah, they want a yard, and yeah. and, and, they they want and they're a much larger, pers- you know, uh, in, in a popul- from a population numbers standpoint than the, than Gen Xers, and way bigger than boomers, way bigger. way bigger than Gen Xers, but bigger than boomers it, now they're too. Huge, and and yeah. they're driving this thing, and 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 we all and and I read stuff, and I read something that said, well, there's no housing shortage because look, obviously everybody has a place to sleep. I mean, this is ridiculous kind of things that are being written. We are in a weird psychology after 0809, and we haven't shaken it yet, which is that tomorrow the world is going to end. And it, from our standpoint in our business, it certainly doesn't feel that way. It certainly feels that um, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of growth and a lot of reinvestment. Uh, our, a lot of our companies are investing in new facilities. They're investing in new equipment. They're, they're raising capital for the right reasons right? <laughs> uh, to, to, gr- to grow their, their product breadth, the, the capabilities, the efficiency to deal with the, what looks to be a permanent labor shortage. So that takes a tremendous amount of investment to, to reinvent your business based on you know, uh, automation as opposed to manual labor. I mean, we're shifting and you know, the demographics are going to lead the discussion. And certainly when it comes to something like steel, not, it's not going to lead the discussion when you talk about Bitcoins and things. But when you look about steel and the guts of the economy and an infrastructure bill coming, well, it's, it's been passed, but it's going to take time for that money to get into the steel consuming economy. But we're super bullish. I mean, we're building a new facility in Houston to add capacity to our business. We wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think there was a market for it. Yeah. And you, you bring up a good point. We've talked about this in the past that it does seem that, that the thinking out there is very binary. It's either, it's either 100% on, this is the greatest thing in the world, or it's the world is ending. Right. And the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Sometimes you're closer to one side than the other side. But I'm with you on that in the sense that I, I look, you look across the landscape and is there going to be bumps in the road? Of course there is. But um, tell me if I'm wrong with this, but we've had two huge disruptions in the last couple of years. We had obviously COVID, big one. And now you've got Russia, Ukraine sort of simmering there in the distance and that big unknown around that. What has that taught companies that make stuff in the United States? It has taught them, in my view, tell me if I'm wrong. But if you have a 50, 100, 200,000, $5 million machine, whatever it is you're making and selling, mm-hmm. and now you, your ability to put this thing out there, put it out in the marketplace is dependent upon this piece that you get for five bucks a piece over mm-hmm. in Asia or 100 bucks, whatever it is. The, all of a sudden, the incentive to save 10% of your cost by pushing that stuff offshore, when you realize how fragile that supply chain can be, even though there's, there's workarounds that are found, the impetus or to, to bring all that home Mm-hmm. It has to be unbelievable. Am I am I wrong there? No, you're you're right down the line. This is the discussion that's happening, and it's it's about sustainability of your the physical supply chain as well as what's going to cost you to do it. And when you look at private equity, probably the public markets, the questions that CFOs are fielding 
have to do a lot with how much control do you have over your supply chain. And we've seen companies, whole purchasing organizations wiped out in the last year and a half because this model that grew out of an infinite supply of everything for free from China is gone. It's, it's not gone, but it's severely disrupted. And the risk that's in these far-flung supply chains is too great. And there's a, a recolonization happening in the United States of um, manufacturing ability as a result of this. And so there's a premium now on, yeah, you have a great product, and, but how do you make that product? And how can you prove to us as an investor that you could continue to make it in all you know, all seasons, right? For this thing. So yes, yes, and yes. And not just controlling the production of it, but controlling its cost. So that those are two, you know, in in sometimes separate discussions. Yeah. We bring up, that's another great segue into the next question I was going to ask you. Controlling costs, another big topic right now in terms of what you're seeing in inflation in different sectors of the economy. Um, How's that, how has that impacted your part of the world? What, what, are, what are your customers feeling out there? Well, you know, the, the price, we sell a commodity. So the, the, we, don't, we don't have um, inflation for what we sell isn't very apparent looking um, because the price of steel, for example, in depths of COVID was about $400 a ton. So this is April, 2020. And a year later, it was $1,900 a ton. So it, you know, is that inflationary or is that, you know, what is that, right? That's not really mm-hmm. inflation. That's a whole lot of other things happening. Now it's trickling back down to around eleven, twelve hundred dollars $1,200 a ton. Okay. So there's a lot of volatility in what we do. For us, the inflation is more happening in packaging materials. It's happening with labor in, in, in that aspect. But as a percentage of, you know, it's going up as a percentage of the sale, but most of our sales, so like, you know, 80, excuse me, about 90% of our, um, and that's eighty percent of our cost as a business is the actual steel itself. So then we're managing that other twenty percent as far as from a cost standpoint. So inflation inside of our business isn't too serious, especially if the value of the commodity goes up. Then there's some cover there for us. Got it. Got it. And are you are you finding that um, that your your customers in the past? Because I was looking at your website and things that you do in the in the hedging world. In the past, I guess they weren't able to really do that. The the, the, the financial products didn't exist for a large manufacturer that needs a bunch of steel to hedge off that risk. And steel's an interesting commodity because it's the commodity that's not really a commodity. Uh, if you look at the grain business, you know, a, a bushel of corn is a bushel of corn. Yeah. Uh, look at um, aluminum. And a, a, a chunk of aluminum is a chunk of aluminum. And you can sit it somewhere and leave it there. And it's fungible with other aluminum. Steel coils don't work that way. Steel coils erode. You know, so you know everyone knows what rust is. So if you look at take a steel coil and you set it outside in a, in the yard, and two years later you have a pile of dust. So uh, steel is not. It trades like a commodity, but it's not truly fungible. And that difficulty made it very hard as commodity markets developed in this country in the last 175 years. Very hard to commoditize it for the future. Um, with it with a traditional futures contract. Unlike, for example, copper or interest rates, you know, it's, it's again, each coil that a steel mill produces is that that coil mills, that's steel mills specific coil. So they don't, they don't even 
they're not even the same amongst producers, even if they're specified to be the same. Okay. So steel is flat roll steel is the most widely used industrial material in the world. Why? Because it's got an infinite combination of thicknesses and widths and grades and gauges and coatings and all kinds of things that go into it to, so that manufacturers can custom make their own product. Every order we get for steel is a, is a custom order for that particular customer. So we have six, in the last three years, we sold 600 different manufacturers and they had 600 different specifications for what they wanted. And then subspecifications underneath. And so what makes it fabulous is it's uh, infinitely changeable. And what makes it really hard to commoditize is it's infinitely changeable. So developing a hedge for it took a long time and it was very illiquid at first. So we didn't have a hedge for steel until 2009, came on the New York Mercantile Exchange. And then it took it seven or eight years to begin to trade with any, any volume. So if, if you look at um, our industry, it's a couple hundred year old industry in this country, and it's only had a liquid futures contract for about six years. It's amazing. <laughs> so it's, a new, it's, new for, it's new in the industry. It's new for a lot of companies and OEMs to start to deal and grapple with this. But in the United States, you know, as opposed to Europe, you look at the small business community or the mid the mid-sized business community in the United States, right? It's it's either family owned or or private equity has then taken out the families. The private equity business in the United States is much larger than you look at the companies in Europe, it's a lot of legacy, you know, they pass things on generationally. We don't do that and as much. We do it, but we don't do it to the extent they do it, like in a in a country like Germany. So you've got a lot of pressure now in the middle tier, which is a massive consumer of steel. There's a lot of pressure on these companies to begin to deal with price risk and put these tools to work. Whereas kind of left to our own devices, we kind of go back to the old you know, ways of doing things because it is really new in our industry to hedge. So how does a client hedge that out? They've got they come to you and they're making, you know, refrigerators or cars or whatever the product is, and they've got this specification. They want this kind of steel, this mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, obviously um, content of you know, Coke versus iron. How are they do it? You know, how like you said, it's not a it's it's not a clear commodity. So how do they go about pricing that risk? So every steel coil starts with something called a hot roll coil. So even the, um, the cars, the doors on your car, the skin of those doors starts as a hot roll coil. And that is what we trade in the futures market. Okay. So you kind of trade the base thing. And this premium above that. Or That's correct. That. And so then you kind of fix the premiums and the conversion costs to get to whatever you need. Yeah, but, but you're starting with this base thing called a hot roll coil. Do you know what it's like doing like a crack of a barrel of oil almost and then kind of getting the component parts? It is and it isn't because a hot roll coil, it, it, what's great about the steel business is there's so much opportunity um, to evaluate it, you know, oil, first you start with crude oil. Yeah. So you got a light, sweet crude, or you got a heavier crude or whatever, right? So you got two, three kinds of crude oil, whatever you have. And then you crack those off to jet fuel and yeah. diesel and whatever you're doing. Steel, you take three, primarily three independently traded commodities. And you take those three independently traded things, and you put them in to make steel. So you have iron ore, scrap, and coal. Right. Okay. Right. So they all trade independently. Look at the coal market, right? Thermal coal market right now, which is heating coal, right? And, or, or energy coal for, um, you know, because look at Europe, right? They, they ran out of wind and they got shut down by, you know, or they're shutting out Russia. And now, okay, they need more power. What do they do? They burn coal. I mean, these right. guys, okay. They burn coal now. And that's your, that's your marginal BTU at the moment. 
because there's such demand for thermal coal, it's driving something called metallurgical coal's price, which is what we use in the steel industry to burn iron ore coke, right? to get the iron out of the iron. Okay. Ore. Yeah. So that's the fuel, right? So the, the, the coal's the fuel, the ore is the, the basic thing. And then you mix yeah. in scrap. Every steel manufacturer mixes in some scrap into the mix now in the way that we make steel in the world. Um, so those things trade independently and then you, then you trade steel and then tr- steel turns into like these cracked off things like you're talking about mm-hmm. in oil, where you have galvanized or coal roll or more value added different kinds of steels. So it's, it's interesting because it funnels in, makes a thing, and then it sprouts off into new things. So there's, there, there are a lot of angles with it. Got it. And so the, and the, and the inflation that we're seeing, like you said, it's packaging and some other things like that, but it's not, it's not so much impacting the core commodity, which is, which is the base of all this stuff. Well, I mean, there's a case to be made that we've made a step change in commodities because it's going to be, especially when you look at base metals or aluminum kind of business, copper business, smelting businesses because of ESG. Mm-hmm. Perfect segue because so, I wanted to talk to you about so that. So we can talk about that and we talk about this localization of supply chains. So, so all the things that we're, you and I have been talking about during this conversation, at the end of the day, they add up to a more expensive world, right? Uh, because the ways that we used to do things in our industries, those ways are changing quickly and the premium is going up to make your product. So you look at the price of steel in the nineties and the average, um, the, the inflation adjusted average of, of steel today in the nineties was $477 a ton. On or about 2004, China really entered the world stage as the dominant player in the steel industry. There was a step change in the market. And in the 16 years between 2004 and COVID, steel averaged almost $700 a ton. So it dipped back sometimes to the prices you saw in the prior decade, but didn't stick there for very long. Mm. Then we had COVID. And what COVID do in so many industries accelerated the timeframe that was already out there. We were already going to use Zoom. Right. (laughs) It was just going to take 10 years. And then it took three months. So, you know, the same thing happened in the steel industry and, and you can see the change happening super fast now and the premium on becoming a sustainable business. And it amounts to a tremendous amount of cost. Go back and look at China. We had a discussion earlier. I said, well, yeah, China can make great steel, but what, what supports that needs a lot of change because right. there's a lot of aged looking, very carbon intensive, you know, coal-based energy production that's driving the steel market in China, what's it going to cost them to retool 50% of the world's steel production? There's going to be a lot of money. So what do they need in China? They need a high steel price. So you need a high steel price over cost to generate enough profit to reinvest in your infrastructure to create, right? So you have a chicken and the egg. And what we're seeing is now you have a step change in the price of steel. And so our projected range for steel prices going out the next decade is now the kind of the bottom about 850 and the top about about 1250. So go back and look in the 90s it was it was 477 dollars a ton and now we're saying a minimum would be 850. And you're talking inflation adjusted back in the 90s. That's inflation adjusted. Yeah. So these are real constant dollars. Right. So you know how much of it is inflationary per se, how much of it is structural change to the way we do business. I mean it's a combination of both. Yeah. In terms of ESG, so the people listening, it's environment, environmental, social, and governance. It's a big kind of a hot button issue. I've had several people that have asked me, they want to invest exclusively behind those principles. 
what I think of those, that type of thing. Uh, I have other people that it, it angers them that you have this kind of uh, stakeholder, not, not shareholder capitalism, but you have this stakeholder capitalism where you have people that may not be involved in actually the creation of the product. Uh, now we're getting a say in how this in how this, these businesses are being governed. I would imagine in something like steel, which is a lot cleaner, I think now than most people would recognize. But the the idea of it is still this smokestacky, you know, old polluting type business. How 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 extreme are those ESG pressures with with the people you're working with? Well, it's building it. It, it at Flack Global Metals, we just um, for example started a carbon trading desk where we're trading uh, the, the the voluntary and involuntary markets both um, globally for carbon credits, and we're doing that to support primarily to support our customers so that we can help them work toward neutrality. And, you know, I don't have, we don't have, as we run our business, we're not having emotional uh, this, that, and the other about all this and this movement, right? It is happening. It just is what it, it is. is what it is. And it's a movement in the, around the world in the developed economies. And so and a lot, of, I read a book a long time ago and it, in the book, the, the, the protagonist of the book said, everything that contributes to the world's improvement and spinning faster is good. And everything that tries to, to stop it is bad. And you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but the point of this is that this is, this is a real thing. It's a real movement. It's a, uh, you can debate how fast the earth is warming and all this, but it doesn't even, even matter, right? What, what matters is socially, this is where we're, we're headed. The idea is out there. It's taking hold. It's taking root. People will fight it, but why fight it? Let's move toward it because there's so much un- trend in it. And we're behind to some degree in the United States from where they are in Europe. You know, Europe's the leader in this and California here in the United States is the leader, but you have um, significant, what, what, what's not written about enough or discussed enough what we're seeing are the carbon capture projects, which are being developed, which are truly good which are truly pulling carbon out of the atmosphere or preventing it from being emitted. And that, that generating a profit opportunity for someone. I mean, think about that. Your profit opportunity is to generate these credits that get sold in the public market. But in doing that, you've developed a profitable business by creating either an alternative energy source and or pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, this is all like super positive stuff. Yeah. So it's going to have fits and starts in, um, Certainly, there's some heavy hands out there. I mean, you look at some of the investment funds being extremely heavy-handed about this stuff. Um, but they're also, when you look at ESG, you have you have three separate subjects there that all get wrapped into one. Um, we're focused on the environmental impact, the social construct, the rest of it. You know, we're not our, in our in our company. Um, you know, we're small, but but the environmental side of it is where we're focused. Got it. Got it. And do you think is is there any sense of concern that from your customers or the people you're working with that us trying to adhere to these ESG standards or incorporating, incorporating them to a greater degree into our business models here. Does that make us less competitive with a country like China that just doesn't quite frankly give a damn about any of that stuff? At least well, now they're not. Well, I think they do care. Um, and that the people in China clearly care because they're destroying their environment and they know it. I mean, it's hotter there. It's dirtier there. Their air is dirty. They, and and the, and, the, and the CCP has been pretty clear that they've got that they're going to try, yeah, to do what they can do. Now they've got issues in the short run here that they have to deal with, but over the long haul, there's only one way for them to go, or they're they're going to destroy their environment to a point where, you know, yeah, I mean, it's kind of 
It's been a while since I've been over the there, but man, I mean, your sinuses are inflamed the entire time and it's, you're breathing and all that. The all writing, the writing's on the wall. I mean, yeah. we, they have to do basic things there that we did here 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, you know, again, it's back to th- this has to happen yeah. for humanity. And I'm not evangelist for environmental causes, but it's happening in business. It's important for business. I mean, why, why, why be wasteful? Our whole business model is built on eliminating waste. That's why we started our company. We wanted to help eliminate waste in supply chains. And we didn't spend much time today talking about the way we do business and, and, and put together supply chains. But our supply chains are built around our customers' needs, not around our capabilities and production. Let's touch on that a little bit. And then and when we wrap it up, because I know you're, you're getting out of town this weekend, um, I do want to spend, I want to kind of close it out talking about sort of this conflict of visions that we have now between, say, Western democracies and some of the more authoritarian states. I want to close with that. But for now, though, let's talk about, let's talk about these issues with supply chains in terms of what you, how you work in that space. Yeah. So we, de- we design supply chains around the, the destination and the need as opposed to um, our particular footprint. So we've been an asset light company since we started, meaning production asset light. And then we've woven in, obviously, the financial um, uh, risk management products to, to, bring the, you know, to bring the waste out of the, out of the financial side of it. But we've been optimizing supply chain since we started the company, which means if it makes the most sense for it to go by rail first to somewhere to unload before it goes to the next place, to, you know, we've, we've been very efficient there. And that's how we'd be competitive. So um, getting waste out of supply chains was kind of a core value of FGM before it was popular to talk about. So it's natural for us, for example, to get into carbon, right? Because we've been in that and it was natural for us to demonstrate to our industry that if you can save money by hedging over long durations of time, which we have all the studies and everything, we support that, then the money that you're, you're seeding to the marketplace, there's your money to reinvest in your carbon footprint. There's the money to reinvest in your company to make it more efficient and have a lesser footprint. Got it. Got it. That's our approach. Yeah. And I'm, again, having spent some time on your website, you guys are, it's really cool what you're doing in that space. <laughs> Thank you. Thank it's you. very cool. I want to close with this is I've got this, there's a couple of different points I'm going to come at here. This country to me, it seems like we are, we've just been beating ourselves up lately. And if you look, there's all this talk about decline. It's all this talk about um, you know, negative things that are happening in the country. And the mm-hmm. country's got its problems. Every society and every you know, individual organization, there's something going on. But another thing that I think that the COVID and the Russia-Ukraine thing and everything else has kind of brought forth, it has really clarified and crystallized different visions that the world can kind of choose to live under right now. Mm-hmm. You've got Western democracies, flawed in their own ways for sure, but have been an absolute, um, at the, we, we live in the world created by, by West, Western democracies versus say what you have with in Russia or China specifically, these very authoritarian regimes that where the people are essentially just, you know, they could throw in the meat grinder and, and the regime is going to do whatever they want versus the freedom and the, and the, 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 in many cases, the liberalism we have in the West, but also the ability for people to, to actualize great ideas and, and do great things. And we've talked at length about this and, and you, know, you talk about your own story and in terms of anything being possible in this country. 
And I just want I want to exp- I know I'm kind of I'm, I'm going going in circles here, but I want to expand you on just that. Gave me four topics. So. Well, hit, hit, hit one of them because because you know I, we we don't take time to recognize, and I've said this before on this podcast. This country is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And this notion that um, that first of all the country has anything to apologize but apologize for to me it's complete nonsense. This notion that you cannot achieve things and that this country is not going to continue to, to advance in the future to me is also complete nonsense. So I'm gonna I want to just kind of send that over to you because I know you're you're almost an evangelist in terms of the future of this country. Yeah, we're 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 very bullish on the United States, and you know somebody was. A few years ago, the popular thing to talk about, certainly in our industry, is, oh my God, look how many engineers they're graduating in China. They're graduating 300,000, whatever the number was, engineers, and we're only graduating 30,000. They're, they're 10 times more, therefore, they're going to beat us out by 10 times. And, and I look at the kids in the United States, right? I have, I have a 20-year-old son, I have a 17-year-old son, I have a 7-year-old daughter, and I look at the kids. And you know, the kids, they watch the TikTok videos and they're doing all this crazy stuff for the United States. And we look at our children, oh my God, these kids are lazy. I mean, that's what they said about us Gen Xers, that we were lazy, but then we invented the internet anyway, <laughs> um, or the use of it. But you look at a child in the United States, it says, you know, I want to go into engineering. This is what I want to do with my life. And then they go into engineering and they, maybe they invent something. They get to keep that invention. You don't get to keep your invention in China. Yep. You don't get to keep anything in China. And so our kids here, maybe less of them end up going into these technical fields and maybe in some theoretical idea that these other countries have more or more volume of it, but do they have as creative a volume as we have? I have a friend and he's from London and he was in LA recently and he pointed out the homeless situation in LA, which is a travesty. He said, we don't have that in the UK. We just don't have that in the UK. And I said, well, you know, name five things that were invented in the UK in the last 50 years that we use in our daily life. Yeah. And he looked at me, you know, we're still innovating in this country and, you know, things don't happen in a straight line. We are the world's reserve currency. That's not changing no matter what the pundits are talking about. There's no substitute. There's nowhere else to go. You're not going to go to the Euro that can break up at any time. Certainly not going to the Chinese RMB. Look what they're doing right they're now. Absolutely. is blasting. Okay. Liquidity in their own they're system. blasting everything. Yeah. So, so, so where are you going to go? You're going to stay in the dollar at least for now, at least for the next hundred years or some long, crazy long period of time. And we're certainly not going to supplant the dollar with Bitcoins. So, and that's another whole discussion, but I'm optimistic on the United States because people in the United States, like my brother, okay, my brother's a solar engineer and he's invented the technology to, to dramatically reduce the amount of time that it takes to install a solar panel on a roof. And then he's created technology that really any labor, any mechanical type of person can go on a roof and, and, and do it instead of having a sp- specific set of training and everything to put these solar panels in. So he's really democratizing this process. And and economizing it. And he will keep his invention and he will, he, and he will grow that business. And, and this is, you know, so maybe our kids are a little more creative because they can bounce around and maybe our kids are going to do just fine because I look at the children today and they're so much further along in understanding how the world works than I was when I was their age. And we're, you know, yes, the education system is there's problems. There's problems everywhere. You can look for all the problems. You want to look for problems, you'll find problems. You want to nourish yourself with problems, you'll find problems. But there's so many green shoots in the United States from a technology standpoint, educational standpoint, invention standpoint. It's all here. And we're big enough and strong enough 
where you know the next chapter in our development as a country has not been written yet. And this this country is a gift to the world. I agree with you 100%. I agree with 100%. And I, I know you've been around and you know, I've been to 56 countries now at this point. And yeah, I, <laughs> when you see what, the, what your option is, there is no place else to be uh, than, than, than what you can do in the United States. And you, and you bring up a key point. You, you can have a great idea here. You can build a business and you do get to keep it, which is, which is absolutely amazing. And you get to make, hopefully you're making everybody else's lives better in the process. I mean, democracy is messy. Yeah, but you're seeing democracy in this country. You know, they say it's it, it's dead, or Trump broke it, or Biden broke it, and it's craziness. I don't talk about that. But look at them in China right now. They made a policy and they said we're going to have zero COVID. That's it. This is what we're doing. In spite of the thing developing and changing, and in spite of what viruses do, we're the Chinese Communist Party, and we said we're going to get rid of COVID by locking them up and whatever. And they can't stop. Because that's the premium is on that. There was a great show. I don't know how much time we have left. There was a great show on HBO about Chernobyl. Right. And in Chernobyl, this, this reenactment of what happened there, you got the boss man is sitting in the office and the worker comes in and he says, the boss man, the, the reactor melted down. It's gone. He says, no, no, it's not. It's not gone. He's no, it's just out there. This is a big problem. The thing is gone. It's sunk into the earth. And he says, you're going to lose your job. I'm going to fire you from your job. If you say that again, go out there and fix it. <laughs> okay. So like, this is what's happening right now. And this is there. You see China and they're very smart. Okay. This is a sophisticated people. They're not, but they're caught in a trap. Everything has gone their way for the last 30 years with us supporting it. Yes. So we have supported them with technology. They have stolen our technology whatever we've done to transfer technology to them. And we've benefited from it. Okay. I'm not going to say we haven't. We've benefited from it tremendously in this country. I mean, everything they sold us, they took a loan back with US treasuries. It was yeah. fabulous for us. It's a big investment China made in the United States. But they haven't had to make any tough decisions. They just followed along and become extremely powerful. And they've done extremely well. But you look at their central bank. What is it? What's well, modeled off of ours, right? right? But you look at our central banks had to make decisions for 100 years. Theirs has had to make decisions for the last decade, really. Yeah. You know, they don't have the depth of institutions that we have. They just, they just don't. And I'm not being, I'm not like down on China, but they're having, they're having a real problem with this COVID thing. They're, this is the first problem they can't squish with force because they, and there's no flexibility in those institutions. Right. So the United States, like if you don't do a good job or if we don't think you did a good job, you're out of office, you're boom, out you go. That's not what's happening there. There's one party rule. So, you know, it's sloppy here. It doesn't look as clean. And, and they were using that from a propaganda standpoint, certainly said, well, look at the United States, look at a mess. I mean, this Trump thing and their, their election. And there was a thing in the in January 6th and oh my God, these people are a mess and they can't handle COVID. Everybody's dying. And now look at them. Right. They can't make a decision and they can't get their way out of it. And they can't. And so this like, to me lends to, sure, they're going to make uh, good AI and 5Gs or whatever. Okay. My phone still works here. I don't know if I have 5G or not. It says 5G. I don't think it really is 5G, but it doesn't really matter. I can still make a phone call. It's not the issue. The issue is how are they going to innovate when they are willing to lock you up and put wire, steel wire on your door so you can't escape your house when they decide. And then they send drones flying around Shanghai saying, resist the temptation for free. Yeah. So these people are going to lead the world? I don't think so. 
I, I 100% agree. I with think you. we'll continue to lead the world. We have a messy process. It's been messy since we started. You know, we talk about well, this, that, and the other with Twitter, and this, that, and the other is a horrible thing, and we say horrible things about each other in, in social media. Back in the in the founding fathers' days, if I didn't like you, I started a newspaper. Okay, I'm I'm Thomas Jefferson. I start a newspaper, <laughs> or we'd have a about <laughs> someone and say well, hor- and make up horrible things about that person and Very publish true. it. And there were like I don't know hundreds and hundreds of these newspapers circulating in D.C. and in in New York and in Philly. Back, you know, and it was all made up. Okay, we've been doing this. Yeah, and and that anybody thinks this is novel? What's going on with our discourse here in the United States. It's not. Yeah. Okay. It's the same thing. It's messy here, but maybe that mess and maybe the fact that our kids, you know, live kind of a random lifestyle as opposed to, you know, kids that are only taught STEM in Asia, maybe it yields a better way. Well, and we'll we'll leave it on that, but Jeremy, I got to tell you, I've been really excited. Eric's told me or heard me talk to you, talk about you for for a little while now. I want want to get you on here and cannot thank you enough for carving some time out of your afternoon to have this discussion. This was, this was awesome. And, uh, and thanks again for coming in. Well, it's been a pleasure, Brian. It's a pleasure knowing you and uh, you're very thoughtful about what you do. And I know you personally, and you're thoughtful about what you're doing at work, um, for, for your investors and, um, you know, these kinds of things are great to do because, you know, we all are on automatic pilot all the time and to take a, take a moment out of it and, and really look at, look at the world, uh, step apart from it is, is a, a welcome thing to do. So appreciate the, the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I just love the positivity period. Uh, what, what a way to end the podcast. Uh, I just think that it's something that we don't have enough of the positivity that we all need to be listening to. So, uh, both of you, thank you so much for the podcast. Brent, of course, thank you so much for facilitating this. And our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. And again, this is a very positive one. Let's share this one. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.